Okay. Welcome to Mandu Car, a casual engineering podcast for the casual engineer. I'm Josh. He is Alex. How are you doing, Alex? Um, I'm good. I've got some. I've got. Some, I've got iced coffee this morning. It is. It's happening. That sounds delicious. Oh yeah. Cooling and caffeinated. Um, be as casual as you like, Alex. This is just. It's just two brothers just having a chat about engineering and such. I was already casual. I'm so casual. I thought I'd kick off with um with a boat update. You like boats. You've been working on boats. How are your boats going? I do like boats, yeah. Um, Well, one of them sat on the drive um, slowly. um, It's got a bit of a mould problem, which I really need to tackle. But um, don't ask me how it got a mould problem. Uh, Something to do with some sugar, which I may have put on it and um, and not removed in a in a good way. Like like beer. No, no. So so to get the grip on the floor, um, I covered the. The floor of the boat in epoxy and then sprinkled sugar on it and then when the sugar dissolves it leaves like a grippy surface oh cool yeah yeah um and then uh so it's like it's like wood then a layer of varnish and then a layer of epoxy but i didn't and you're supposed to wash out all of the sugar i didn't wash out all of the sugar so <laughs> so it's got a grippy surface but i think it has got a bit of a mold problem now so I, I need to tackle that, but um, it's quite happily sat on the drive. And then the OK is in the shed. Yeah, it's um, it's going well. Um, I've keyed up pretty much all of the. So so for background, this is this is the OK dinghy that I'm taking to the World Championships next year. What's it made of? For any person unfortunate enough to stumble upon this audio. Oh, it's um, a, it's made of it's a fiberglass. Um, it's a 1997 fiberglass OK dinghy from. Uh, Rup- is it? It's either Rushworth or Rousel. I can't remember. Uh, Are these British companies? Uh, yeah, it was made in England. Um, it's solid boat, really solid boat. Um, probably not the not got the best weight distribution ever, but it cost was not uh, well. It co- was it cost me three k, but it's got a nice mast um, and it's solid boat. So that's just about what you pay for an OK these days. Um, and yeah, so it's in the shed. It's going to be repainted and refitted. And I'm currently at the stage of um, yeah, all of the gel coat on the top is keyed up basically. Um, but I need to. Um, I'm sort of at the stage of uh, working out where I'm going to put all the control systems and stuff. Um, and there, and obviously spending a horrific amount of money on tiny bits of metal um, and blocks and stuff. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's going well, um, and I've I've got a bit more filler work to do. So so what I'm trying to do to kind of lift the the image of the boat because it's like I don't know if you're familiar. Well, you you are familiar with like late '90s sort of fiberglass structures, and yeah. they're, they're a little bit um, white. Well, white and kind of a little bit clunky. So, yeah. so this boat is—it's made of different mouldings stuck together, but where the mouldings stick together, they're just there's just like there's no radius radii, I guess. They're they're all just like you know ninety degree corners, and it all. How do you do that on a boat? What do you mean? That'd be that'd be really hard to get really sharp corners in a fiberglass mould. Well, they, they've managed to get really sharp fiber, really sharp corners, but but like I mean, like so where the deck. Where the front deck molding sits on the molding of the bottom of the boat, yeah. it, it's literally it's got like a, a flange, a lip, and then they're just stuck together. Yeah, like so you can see that it's just two moldings stuck together, and it's a bit clunky. So, um, 
where where that is, where all the mouldings meet, basically I've, I'm going around and um, filling it all in so they're smooth transitions. Um, do the rules allow you to do that? Because yeah. surely that's a performance advantage. It's not... Um, I wouldn't say it's a performance advantage. Um, it's... Because it, it's adding weight to the boat without a, any performance. I mean, it might stiffen it up a little bit. Um, yeah. But mostly it's just going to make it look less crap. Um, so I've sort of got got nerd sniped doing that to be honest um sort of because nerd sniped you're not familiar with nerd sniping no i'm not familiar with nerd. is that when someone comes out and it's just like stopping a nerd no no it's the complete opposite it's it's an, an xkcd um comic where a man is like sitting by the side of the road i mean it, it's not very this won't be a fantastic explanation but you see terrible audio um yeah medium. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Get, go and go and look it up. Nerd sniping. And <laughs> okay, it's 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 fantastic. Um, you mentioned uh, weight distribution yep. on a dinghy. Um, obviously, you've got two sources of uh, force. You've got the sail. You've got reaction through the keel or centerboard, um, and they are apart. So you've got you know, you've got a moment created by those. Um, where exactly do you want the weight distribution in a dinghy? Um, you want it in the middle, um, so so people always talk about taking weight out of the ends um, to reduce inertia. To reduce inertia, yeah, yeah. Um, we we had a, a really good um, illustration of this actually at uh, Salkin Week, um, God, twenty eighteen now. Um, so my my very good friend Ben um, and I went and did Salkin Week, which for those who don't know is is a, a week long regatta in Salkin in Devon. Um, for Merlin Rockets, um, it's a fantastic week. You race up and down this horrible estuary. Um, there, it's it's just like horrific, but very very interesting. Anyway, What's horrible about it? Oh, that the wind is just all over the place. Um, we had, for instance, we had one race where you've got a, a sea breeze, which is the where the land heats up and um, you get a, a, a convection off the land and it brings in wind from the sea. But the gradient breeze, so that's the the gradient wind from the dominant weather system, and they were in um, they were opposing each other. So you had the oh. the sea breeze from the south southwest, and the gradient breeze from the northeast. And that's amazing. They, of course, because as the land warms up, the yeah. heat, the air rises yeah. off the land, and then it sucks the air in off the sea. Yeah. But then, it, yeah, if you've got a storm front or at least just yeah the just the just, general pressure gradient is against that yeah yeah that's 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 why it's the gradient it's the gradient breeze because it's just the pressure gradient um and they they were opposing each other and where they met was in the middle of this estuary and our race course was going up and down the estuary so you you had the situation it's like racing in the solon but on a tiny scale yeah. you had the situation where there was about 50 meters with no wind and that was moving up and down the estuary as these two forces were fighting each other. And we were <laughs> racing up and down this estuary with loads of tide changing as well. Crazy. Anyway. Weight distribution. Weight distribution. And you could see it in... So we, we were racing this um, kind of... It's like a old wooden... It's not really old. It's sort of an early 90s wooden Merlin rocket. Very heavily built, sort of designed for... It's like a battleship on the sea, basically. And um, and you can just see the the difference in inertia between our boat and the newer boats. I mean, we were very heavy anyway. We're two big guys, 
So we were a bit heavy to be racing the boat together anyway, but we we're doing it for fun. But yeah, you could just see where where we would go through waves, the the newer boats would just go over the top. And you could see we were losing speed as we were going through each wave, whereas they were accelerating. And so and so we always talk about yeah, taking weight out of the ends in, in racing dinghies. But really, this one I'm I'm not sort of I'm not going to do any big structural changes. It's simply going to be, well, simply, I'm going to change the colour because the colour was horrible because it was white underneath and then kind of an off grey with this weird blue stripe on the deck. Not not good. It's very early 2000s, that. It's, it's very early 2000s. It was probably very cool in 1997. Um, yeah. But so it's going to be um, block colour, um, it's going to have all the transitions are going to be are going to be filled in. It's going to be for for those color fanatics out there. Pantone three 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 C. I have to Google it. You have to Google it. It is a I love it. Um, cute frantic typing noises. Yeah, and it's <laughs> I'll um when I post this up on the website, I'll uh, <laughs> I'll put the color chip in the, in yeah, the bottom. Yeah, yeah, do it. Yeah, so that's going to be the colour of the boat. I'm hoping that it's going to kind of... I mean, I'm learning to spray. So um, this is like turquoise? Yeah, kind of like turquoise. Like, I'm aiming for it to really pop. Um, it might not come out like that. I don't know yet. Mm. Um, but, I mean, I'm I'm doing it to teach myself how to use a spray gun. So, because um, I'm... This gonna... is going to be like a, just like a standard single pack No, pack no, it's, it's two pack. Um, I'm going to do two pack acrylic to kind of just give them, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge, but it's going to be, I'm going to learn how to do it. I hate bodywork as a, as a pivot <laughs> on that a segue. Um, I've just taken all of the bodywork off the low cost to send to the painters because I quite fancy, look, I'm a professional these days. I earn, I earn a little bit of money. Um, being able to pay someone to do something I greatly dislike is just the biggest luxury in the world. Oh man, I totally, I, I can totally get on board with that. I just, I, I was on the edge of paying somebody to repaint my boat, but I kind of figured that I, I just wanted to learn how to do it myself. The big thing for me is feel, right? So like, like painting, you literally, you run your hand over a surface and a professional painter will instantly know whether that, you know, to go up to the next size sandpaper, to uh, whether that surface is ready to go, whether you'll get away with just painting it because you're going to block it out mm-hmm. in the next run. Like, I just, I don't have the experience and it's it's hard. Oh, yeah, fair enough. I suppose I've, I've done a lot of sanding and varnishing um, over the last few years on my fire. You're a boat owner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's half of the hobby. I, I just... Um, I think, yeah, I'm coming into my, I say I'm coming into my 30s now. I'm in my 30s now. I'm 31. And um, I'm starting to understand the things I like and I don't like. And sticking metals together with a welder and then and then grinding them back and, you know, painting them in the end, all good. Um, Bodywork, not so great. Although I'm doing a little bit of fiberglass at the moment to um, fill in holes in my dashboard mm. to, um, to pad it. And, and vinyl it something i've never done before and uh get it ready for iva which to there we go segue into low cost updates thank you for telling us all about boats i know i don't hear enough about boats 
I'm sorry, I, I accidentally just turned off your audio. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, like uh, the whole whole reason I quite fancy doing a podcast was because I just couldn't bring myself to write an article uh, about the car and sit down and write about it. So why not chat about it? I chat about it all the time, so it's easy peasy on a microphone. Tell me, tell me all about it. Uh, the last time I posted about it was uh, November 2019, and uh, a lot. I think a lot's changed since then. I've welded on a VIN number. Um, the whole chassis has been uh, painted, like stripped down and painted. Hold on, what, what do you mean you've welded on a, a VIN number? Like, as in you... you so, like- for I, so what I'm trying to do with the car at the moment, to give everyone a bit of an idea of my objective, is to get it roadworthy. And um, to get it roadworthy, you have to pass this thing called an IVA test, which is like the worst MOT you've ever seen. It's incredibly stringent. And one of the things for that is that you have to have a piece of metal on the car with the VIN number, which you, you get from the DVLA, um, scribed into it and welded on. You paint over the top and it's like a permanent feature on the car that, that says, look, this is the, the car that says it is and, and it matches all the paperwork. So um, I emailed to the DVLA. This is magic, this. Emailed the DVLA. And they sent me back like a week later. This is the VIN number for your car, which was surprisingly a big, was a big moment. I quite liked that. Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah, it's got paperwork. And so I, um, I took a two. I'm looking at the pictures now. Took a two mil thick piece of steel, and a Dremel, <laughs> um, made a template in paper to sit over the top, taped it down, and then just Dremeled the whole. VIN number <laughs> into this two mil piece of steel. It took forever, but they get a bit snarky if it doesn't look permanent. So it mm. has to be quite deep into the steel. Um, so anyway, welded that in, painted over that because I've gone through the chassis and cleaned it up. Uh, lots of things have happened in the last year. Um, there was a bunch of repairs I had to do because the bottom side of the chassis is well was really beat up um, from getting it on and off our really janky trailer. Um, not did f- all new not from our Sorry? um not from our small excursion at Snetterton. Uh, some of it is from a, a minor excursion at Snetterton. <laughs> um, that was mostly mud. And the car like you're trying to get the mud out of all the corners from going off track at Snetterton. Um <laughs> for, for people who are interested, we went off at Hamilton, I believe is the corner, uh which is a, a double right hander, like twin apex right hander. And I just went into that and in the driver's briefing they even said, look it's greasy out there, especially at Hamilton. Um, look out, there's been building work. Take it easy around that corner. <laughs> and you gave it all the beans. Well, no, actually, I, I was I was breaking like quite early to go into that corner to sort of like get a bit of a feel on turning, but um, apparently not early enough. And uh, I learned my lesson. Got a little bit of mud. Didn't break anything. It's not so bad. Um, but yeah, I did all new lines for the dry sump system. Um, what else have we done? Got so many pictures. I remounted the steering rack because the old steering rack mount was properly like, you, you were, soft. You were telling me about this, how it's, um, yeah, like it was, what did you say? Like it was spaced away from the cross member. So you're actually getting like a, a sort of a, a talk or a moment yeah, where so my, you turned or something. The car was originally designed by my dad and he, our dad, Factual. Uh, Factual yeah. <laughs> um, and he put an awful lot of what they call Ackerman steering into it, which means you have to put the steering rack quite far back. And in the end, it just didn't work from a packaging perspective. 
and so uh, we had to move the steering rack forwards which meant we just spaced it off the old rack mounts so you know in terms of uh, geometry it all worked out absolutely fine but in terms of compliance and, and stiffness it was as, as soft as a wet noodle and um, in your steering system that's the last thing you want is like you know, a mode of vibration yeah right <laughs> yeah no good so um, yeah i changed the steering rack mount so it's nice and stiff and adjustable now as well um i've learned a lot about things like bump steer and stuff in in my in my years lovely and so being able to dial that stuff out is really useful um yeah as i said oil system stripped the car down painted the chassis um yeah it's a touch-up you know lots of red oxide primer and then satin black paint over the top all about um, the satin black i am yeah, all it, over I, the satin black it looks really good you can't go wrong uh cleaned up the brake system um and then just started bolting this thing all together and um oh rebuilt an engine that was a minor amount of work just casual uh well See, now, the dates on these are in April, and um, there is an elephant in the room as to what's happened this this year. Um, there's, like, one thing we haven't talked about. I'm not sure there's we... I'm not sure there's an elephant in the room. I think it is the room. Yeah, the co- obviously the COVID. We're, we're inside the elephant. We're still, we're still in, the, yeah, we're still in the COVID um, pandemic. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but it gave me a lot more time to work on my projects. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I went from oh we'll just knock back um, knock back all the varnish on the Firefly and um, chuck some more on the top to okay I will strip the entire thing and then completely revarnish it and refit it and rebuild the transom. But I found this was all fine back in March April, so like you know the, the days were getting sunnier, longer. Um, I was doing. You know, probably an hour's less commute a day, so I was getting an mm. hour back. So yeah, I thought, yeah, cool, finally time to build the engine. Built the engine, put it together, all new bearings, um, all new rings. Um, I'll post up a lot of pictures about that. It's the first time I've ever plastigaged a bearing before, which is pretty cool. Plas- um, plastigage is that the stuff that you you like talk the bearing down and then the size of the how much the stuff smushes tells you the diff the the, the clearance is that the thing that's just a beautiful description of exactly what it does. <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a it's like a wax uh s- like cylinder uh that you cut to length to the width of the bearing um pop it uh, in the bearing as you talk down the caps and when you take the caps out again the width tells you the uh, the clearance basically in the bearings, and um, everything was within spec. So I was a happy boy, um, but the bearings that came out were ruined, absolutely ruined. And I think a lot of that was driving my uh, wide sump around Snetterton. Um, but actually, in in reality, it probably wasn't that. It was probably the terrible sump I had in before and ragging that around car parks and. Uh, I was going to say, really why, why would why would why would your wide sump do that? Uh, well, I did an article on that, and it was it was okay in it was okay in uh, left hand corners, but in right hand corners, you still <laughs> saw dips in oil pressure. Which um, just, it, it's all good. Just make sure you only turn left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's um, 
I think that's American circle track racing, right? That's, yeah, right. So it would have been a really good circle track. Some, um, the reality was uh, the gates in it weren't that good. I tried my best. They were made out of door hinges, um, but they could have been much better. And in hindsight, there are like really cool uh, rubber or, or you know, soft plastic ones you can buy for BMWs. Which you just cut a little slot in and pop them in, and they work much better. So hold on, sorry. hold on. So, so the gates are the, the it, in layman's terms the flappy bits in the baffles. Is that yeah what the flappy bits? Yeah. Right. So you have you have your permanent baffles, and then you have the flappy bits that you know when um, the oil splashes from one side to the other, they close because the, the the weight of the oil forces them close. Um, Roger. Sump designers. It's a beautiful thing. I loved building that sump, but a dry sump system was always the way to go in the end. Yeah, well, it's, it's about development, though, and, and design evolution, isn't it? I mean, you know you know how I can wax lyrical about design all day, but it's um, it's like, start with start with the standard sump, and you think, oh, I could improve that, and then you improve it, and you go, actually, that's not good enough, and you go dry sump, and like, loads of people do that with cars, though, don't they? The weird thing with cars is... And I don't know if this is the way we were brought up. And it, with, I think with a lot of engineering in general, I instead of following what someone else said to do, I tend to go through all the iterations and get to the same answer, which, like, that's fine. Um, but it's a question of whether you, you enjoy the process of learning or if you just want the right solution. Exactly. And, I do enjoy the process of learning. However, look, I've been working on this car for like 12 years. There's, there's some places where it would have been nice to just have the right solution in the beginning and not thought about it. Um, but there you go. Yeah, I, I think if you're going to become a good engineer or you enjoy the process of learning, you, you need to go through all the iterations, really. it's uh... Absolutely. Uh, you have to... I think... I think from a... Um... From a from a practical perspective, that iterative learning is absolutely essential, isn't it? Because then you understand the limitations of each of those solutions. Um, like I I do this at at work, you know. This, this is this is most of my job, but yeah, like you have to 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 be able to to present to yourself or to present to a customer why you've reached a particular design solution. You have to be able to to know i suppose if if i was if i was being in therapy terms you have to know in yourself why you've come to that solution and so you have to know all of the all of the wrong answers inside out don't you it served me well professionally um probably not you know in my relationships uh, yeah but, I mean, <laughs> why, why are you building your third sump makes no sense to me <laughs> I, I mean I, I i would never um I, I would never recommend anybody take that approach to their entire life, <laughs> but certainly from a design perspective, yeah. it's um, it's a winner. Yeah, well, our relationship is an iteration. <laughs> yeah, you, don't, you yeah. don't want that. Um, I'm iterating over relationships, so the next one might be a bit better. <laughs> in engineering terms, uh, what else have I done on the car? I I bought some padding again, another another area where I decided not to do it myself and, and just paid the manufacturer. So my um, my seats had to be padded for IVA. They have to have head pads. And uh, JK Composites, the guys who make the seats, make a really nice set of pads. So um, 
Becky and I actually used industrial Velcro to attach those nice. uh, onto the seats. And they look really nice and they feel really nice. So quite like that. Got a few pictures of what's, us sat in the garden. What's the, the what's the finish on your seats? Is it is it matte or gloss? It's glossy fiberglass, yeah. And okay. it's um it's relatively thin because you can see the weave. They they haven't used chopped matte, they've used like a weaved fiberglass well, you'd hope so. to make the seats. Yeah, they're, they're really nice. I really like those seats. Probably the best, kind of 180 quid or whatever I spent on the car. £180 um, pounds per seat? I can't, you know, I can't remember. £180 pound comes to mind, but that feels cheap for a pair. Do you know what that, I mean? That is, um, I'd say that's still quite a good price for, considering I paid about, well, no, I didn't pay. My sponsors paid £800 pounds for a new Firefly mast. I would, I would say £200 pounds per seat is a, is a bargain. Yeah, it's pretty good. But yeah, put that engine together. I, I had a lot of engine issues back in 2018 you know, when I blew a head gasket. I think we blew a head gasket at Snetterton. Yeah, we roasted it. Absolutely yeah, roasted it. Yeah. We, we had really bad overheating issues, which is part of the... It was the water system design that was the issue. And I've amended that now with a with a proper header tank, but that's a story for another you took, day. You took the, um, you took the uh, SpaceX approach to your... Um, <laughs> Reduce your, weight over time. Reduce weight over time. Yeah, yeah. There was no water left in the car, so it went quicker. It, it makes me um, so happy that you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's probably not when you want a car to be reliable. For the, for those for those who who aren't SpaceX nerds, um, this is the uh, was it the it was the hydraulic system um, on yeah. on the um, ah the 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 rocket which comes and lands by itself. Um, and the Falcon, the Falcon, SpaceX Falcon, and they used an open loop hydraulic system. That, in fact, they still use the same hydraulic system, but they had some problems. So one of the crashes, one of the uh, un- unscheduled disassemblies, as they call it, which is fantastic, um, was due to the fact that their hang on, just off the top of your head, yeah, open loop hydraulic system. So a closed loop hydraulic system, I assume, has a pump. Which builds a pressure. Yeah. You then bleed that pressure off into some form of sump, which collects the oil, and then the pump then pumps the oil back into the pressurized system. Uh, one would assume so. Yeah. Yeah. So that's closed loop, and then whenever you turn a valve on or whatever, and you know the the system then has to work a little bit harder because it has more leaks because the yeah. valves on. Yeah. An open loop system is what a pressurized hydraulic cylinder that is one shot. Uh, basically, yeah, and then it. So it's. I, um, so this is yeah, not pressure decay. Not my area of expertise. But <laughs> what yes. you mean? You don't do space rocket design? <laughs> it's it. I, you know what? I have actually done a little bit, but um, okay, that's a completely different subject. Uh, it wasn't space <laughs> rockets; it's ballistic missiles. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So so it bleeds. You have a pressurized vessel, and that is your amount of pressure that you yeah. have to actuate your your hydraulic stuff, and yep they either didn't put enough fluid in the reservoir or didn't pressurize it enough or the reservoir wasn't big enough and they ran out of hydraulic pressure about 50 meters above the landing pad. Which oh, is, I saw the video for yeah, that. Yeah, which is yeah. not what you want to happen. <laughs> and, um, it's, uh, oh. But it's it's the thing is, is that those first landings, I mean, you know, Elon Musk, people have, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that people chuck at the guy and, and I'm, I can't defend him, but... But the approach that they had on those first few rocket landings is fantastic because it was like, we're going to try and land the rocket booster. If it doesn't work, 
nobody's done this before so it won't have yeah, worked yeah. it's just yeah, a failure fantastic- is okay yeah failure is okay because you know this is completely new um absolutely brilliant yes. approach I love so it. i used to run the paddle shift system on the low cost off a paintball bottle yes I so remember it's the same that. it's the same it's the same concept where you've got pressurized air at a very high pressure and then a pressure regulator uh, in line with it that regulates it down and then you've got your system and whenever you would uh, change a valve in terms of its direction um, you would lose air out of one end of a cylinder and then gain air in the other so you've got loss within yeah. the system and um, yeah I imagine they're doing the same thing And but the thing is they were probably doing it at thousands of hertz you know in terms of like micro adjustments within a hydraulic system yeah and so you just get this steady leak off of hydraulic fluid and yeah if you don't scale it the right size it's all going to go wrong yeah um, yeah and and um i mean it's it's definitely the solution because you know space rockets need to be as light as possible well no pump right yeah no. hydraulic pumps are really heavy you have to power that pump yeah so that has that probably has an electronic source you know you screw that um, it's the lightest, most efficient way of doing it, as long as it's sized correctly. Yeah. Um, well, I say that. Yeah. Engineering, you, depending on how much fluid you need to store and at what pressure, it may be the most optimized way of doing it. Because uh, depending on your time period, I assume there's a crossover point where you're better off running a power source and a pump and a fluid reservoir uh, because you're you're using the system for a long enough period of time that it outweighs a fixed system, but. Um, I have to put that caveat because I am an engineering manager and I am expected to uh, know all of the solutions around a problem and then tell the team of those things. And if I didn't, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing my job. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, um, I'm the radar expert on a project that's never had a radar expert before. And it's a radar project. So, um, so that's my life. <laughs> you love it. You bloody love it. But um, yeah, I fixed some issues with the brakes on the low cost. One of the, so the rear left, this is terrible of me, the rear left uh, brake caliper has always squeaked when it goes backwards. Oh my um, God. I love, you know what? I just, I love hearing about problems like this in a car that I've driven around <laughs> at speed. <laughs> it's like, so it always used to squeak when going backwards. And I was like, oh, that's, that's no good. I have to deal with that one day. And, um, I thought maybe it was in the diff, so it was like, oh, okay, cool. You know, I'll one day I'll replace the diff, and it won't be so bad. I replaced the diff on the car, and uh, with a plate diff, which is a much nicer uh, locking unit. Yeah. Um, but it still made that squeaky noise when it went backwards. It was like a, it wasn't even a squeaky noise; it was like a grind when it went backwards. And that's not a good. You, that is not a good thing. Yeah. So I took the caliper off, and lo and behold. It doesn't make the grind noise when it goes backwards. So I pulled the caliper apart, and um, this is like a self-adjusting caliper. So you've you've got a a non-floating side, which its self-adjustment is the fact that the cylinder moves outwards with hydraulic fluid. Yeah. We're staying in subject here, um, and then you've got the floating side, which as a uh, as a reaction is, is basically pulled in um, to to the other side. That's a terrible description of how they work, but anyway. Um, no, I, I know. I know what you mean because you've only. It means you've only got. Um, you've only got a a working cylinder on one side, haven't you? Yeah, essentially the whole caliper. Yeah, there we go. The whole caliper floats. Yeah, you have one cylinder that pushes the two pads together, um, but because it's floating, 
the um, if you don't have a reaction on one side, a reaction force, um, it brings the two things together and they they self center around the disc. Yeah, very cool. But I have the same setup on my Volvo. It's floating. Okay, yeah. the two things have to slide together, which means they are pins of which they slide on. I pulled apart the side that worked, the right-hand side, and these two pins were smooth as you like, greased, everything's perfect. The left-hand side, which gave me these weird squeaky noises, just didn't seem right when I was like pulling it off. And these pins were ta- like they were tapered with clear steps in them, yeah. and the whole thing was loose. Like because it, yeah, none of the clearances or anything were correct, and I bought these calipers secondhand off uh, lowcostbuilders.co.uk. I will name and shame. Um, I bought these calipers secondhand off someone there for a Volkswagen Passat, and clearly they'd rebuilt them with the wrong parts and then sold them to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like yeah, yeah. I bet when they were putting them together, and they're like, oh, this guy's gonna have a terrible time. Um, but yeah, that was like ten years ago. And it cost me it cost me eight pounds in replacement parts. <laughs> like eight pounds. I love that. Someone's gone, oh, I can't be bothered to spend eight pounds <laughs> to get the right part. I'll just use whatever I've got lying around and then flog it. The thing that annoys me, right, is like I've driven this car in competition and time like my times have been really variable. And there have been there have been sessions and days when it was at the pointy end of the field, you know, like top three out of 15 to 30 cars. Um, and I'm not, I'll put my hand to my heart and say, look, I'm not a shite driver. Like I've had, especially in previous work roles, I've had a lot of performance driving experience. Yeah. But I always struggled with getting this car to drive consistently. Um, I, I remember I went into a corner once, uh, a left-hander, in fact, uh, which was right at the end of the course, and I could feel that it was a quick run. This was like me just nailing everything, no adjustments. It was quick. It looked quick, and the rear end stepped out on me as I was like bleeding the brakes in to come into the uh, into the stop box, and yeah. um, I just did a really bad job of stopping the car. And I remember thinking every run that day, I've gone into that corner at the same speed, and it's never done that to me before. Yeah, it's so inconsistent. And then I look at something like this, <laughs> this rear left-hand brake caliper, and I'm like, oh yeah, that could have caused that brake to lock quite easily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, this has been a re- yeah. There have been a number of issues on this car um, that I've plagued have plagued me for twelve years, um, which I've been slowly ticking off. And I think this is the process of development right i there's a lot of fast cars are fast because they've been iterated on not because they were built fast to begin with yeah well that's what you that's what you pay for isn't it yeah but it's 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 interesting anyway just yeah rebuild your calipers when you buy them secondhand would be my tip um no i mean the devil's the devil's definitely in the details especially when you're competing i mean i have this you know i've i've been doing boat stuff for the best part of like 20 years i guess um i suppose in the last 10 years i've been doing a lot of fixing and and iterating on my own boats but you know you, you get to a point where it's fun but you when you're held back by your equipment that's not very fun and um especially when you're on a race course whether you're in a car or whether you're in a boat you want to in in my mind anyway like you don't want to have anything that takes you out of the experience that you're doing because you're fastest when you're not really thinking about it, aren't you? And and you you know you mentioned that you feel you feel like you have a fast run. 
but you feel like you have a fast run. You're not looking at a clock. You're not looking at, at dials and gauges. You're just like, you know, you feel like, yeah, this is fast. You know, I'm in the groove. And yeah, then something yeah. like that happens and it takes you out of it, doesn't it? And you're like... They call it a uh, peak performance. It's yeah. when you're... Um, yeah, you're you're correct. You're, you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're feeling what you're doing. And in race cars, usually you're thinking two or three corners ahead of the corner you're actually driving. Mm-hmm and it's um it's an amazing feeling it's what everyone strives for but yeah you have to have a consistent car basically yeah, the sure. car underneath you because you're replacing your thoughts with your expectations because yeah your conscious mind is well ahead of where you actually are and you're expecting your muscle mechanical inputs to do what you're expecting now if yeah if you have a car that is inconsistent due to you know, thermal issues, tires, mechanical uh, setup. Uh, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> it really yeah. sucks, it's, and it's very hard to go fast. And I think a lot of that's, uh, you know, that a lot of that's the secret to dri- driving a slow car fast. A lot of the reason why slow cars beat fast cars in competitions, especially you know around um, short courses like big car parks, yeah. is because they're easy to drive. And I think there's a lot in in drivers driving them every day. So they build up that muscle muscle memory of how a car drives. Um, it's part of the reason why I want to get the low cost on the road is so that I can take it out on any given Sunday and learn it through and through. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, if I want to drive it fast, it's it's no different than driving to the shops slightly fast. Slightly um, fast. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you, you've got enough roads around where you are anyway to do stuff like that. No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. No, me. no. I mean, uh, I, I don't mean like absolutely send it down country roads, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> you've got to learn it. To yeah, learn to it. learn it. You know, enough corners and stuff like that. No, I'm not advocating. They call it. They call it, they call it nine tenths. It's not quick enough anyway to break the speed limit very often. So, um, but it will get there very quickly. Yeah, I'm in no way um, advocating that anybody goes out on a Sunday and absolutely sends it down some country lanes. That's not not what I'm advocating at all. So I replaced the fuel system, <laughs> having fixed the rear left caliper. Um, I put that differential together. So it's got what's called a, a CAS plate diff in it now, which is, uh, unless we want to go down the rabbit hole of diffs, we can talk about those at another day. That's like um, a whole, but, that's a whole episode in itself. Oh, uh, mate, they're cool though. And I, I, so I used to do a lot of simulator driving and most of the cars in the simulators had simulated versions of plate differentials. And basically, the more torque you put into them, the more they lock. So the more torque you can get across the axle. And they're lovely to drive. And I, I pootled the car around the neighborhood. And you can feel the difference in the diff. You can feel the locking when you load into the throttle. So very cool. Awesome. Again, a limitation we had at Snetterton, um, especially coming around, oh, I don't know if you remember, turn three and four. So you'd come down through turn one, which is the big high-speed right-hander, yeah, through so, turn so two, there's a right, the hairpin. Yeah, yeah, there's there's the high-speed... Let me see if I can remember. There's the high-speed right-hander at the end of the straight, and then yeah. there's a right-hander hairpin, Yeah. and then you... Oh, yeah, and then there's a left... It's like, it's about 90 degree left, isn't it? Yeah, so it's it comes around 90 degrees, but it's a double apex. It's quite broad. It's yeah, a, a very yeah. weird corner. And so there, you'd come onto the throttle coming out as it peeled out into a straight down into another hairpin. And it, you could basically, you were limited by, the car would slide out. So you'd put your foot on the throttle. It would start to overturn the rear inside left-hand corner. 
uh, as because there's no locking diff you know yeah. it, it, that was the traction limitation and the more you got on the throttle the more the the car you had to come off the steering and the car would creep out towards the edge of the track so you were just entirely limited by how fast you could come out of that corner by the differential alone and it was it was a frustrating feeling but it was also like ah oh, cool vehicle dynamics mm. <laughs> you know it's a little bit of learning yeah and and in terms of track time I'm, I'm looking at the google maps of the track now but um carrying speed out of that corner is actually quite important because you've got um that that's a big break on your whole infield sort it's of a, yeah it's a big straight map, and isn't it yeah you know, in any slow car and i'm within you know no uh ignorance the fact that the low cost in all scale of things is a slow car um in slow cars you have to be on the throttle as early as you can at the start of a straight it's they always talk about carrying speed but that's fine unless you've got a very tight corner where you can't carry speed in which case you need to be turned as quickly as possible and then on the throttle as quickly as possible because you need to be using your small amount of power integrated over a very long period of time to keep up with the much faster cars and um yeah i just couldn't get on the throttle early which is why i've put in a much better differential so to put the uh the pin through the differential story i rebuilt it into its softest mode because it's it's a road car i I didn't want a very locked diff and they're designed for mx5s so uh yeah it's a heavier car so i put it in its softest mode and um i looked up how much they cost and they're about 700 pound these cas plate diffs and i got it for fifty pounds off eBay. Oh, sir, that is <laughs> that is delicious. Fun. Speaking <laughs> sold sold to me as a locking differential. That was it. <laughs> that was the only description. Uh, they clearly didn't know what they had, so uh, that was that was great. Hold on, so but did you see pictures? Did you know what you were buying? No, I didn't know what I was buying. I wanted a locking differential. This is again twelve years ago. I wanted a locking differential. <laughs> I bought a few of them. I thought I was buying a viscous differential. Um, which uses viscous fluid and um, I got this plate diff and I didn't know what I had and I was just like I have no idea what that is don't trust it won't put it in the car put it in dad's shed for 10 years <laughs> and then realised I was like oh I really want to buy a plate diff Diff. what's that diff I've got in the shed lo and behold plate diff so uh, yeah bargain that one so, um, so 12 years ago Josh just went on eBay and typed in locking differential and uh, MX, just- MX5 lsd yeah and bought this differential threw it in the shed because he didn't want it um might use it at a later date and lo and behold it's the one that's in the car now so thanks josh good lord um i did a bunch of setup on the car yeah dialed out the bump steer um what else did i do and assembly basically yeah i don't want to go too deep into it but yeah put the new engine in um little things like the <laughs> the auxiliary belt always used to chirp uh, especially when it was cold and it was because there wasn't enough contact surface on the crank pulley uh, for the auxiliary belt to basically deliver the torque that it needed to charge the alternator so I put an idler pulley on that and now it doesn't chirp I never uh, thought of things like that <laughs> yeah uh, and when this is yeah, this is why uh, OEMs know what the hell they're doing um yeah, rebuilt all bits and pieces, put the exhaust system back on, clean that up, and we're coming up to a roundabout now. 
uh, wrapped the exhaust. I've never wrapped an exhaust before. Uh, um, which do you do you uh, you probably don't um, look at the Hoonigan, um project cars stuff on the YouTube's? Do you? No. Well, yeah, they just um, they're building a. Um, are you familiar with what a a donk is? I, no. I, I was not fam- I was not familiar. I, I, I am an ex Formula One yeah. engineer. Yeah, I'm not familiar what a donk is. I'm I'm uh, reliably informed by the internet that it's a it's like a a, a very specific period like Chev Impala, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is this is limited to the United States of America. Um, a, a very specific 70s, it's like 74 to 77 Chev Impala or something. But they they put like 36-inch wheels or something on these cars. <laughs> I assume this has hydraulic suspension. Um, I I don't know. I'm not an expert on the subject. I've got, I've got to Google it. Hoonigan donk. Yeah, they're, they're do- so they're doing a, a project where they're, they're building one of these cars. It's very, very entertaining. But yeah, they, they did an exhaust wrap on that as well. Um, and it, did you wear gloves? I did wear gloves. Yes. Because yeah, otherwise it's it's kind of like fiberglass, but it's like a a volcanic um, coating on it. Sorry, a, is, a volcanic uh, coating? Yeah, I think that's probably bull. It's a ceramic, you know, and then they say it's volcanic, but whatever. Anyway, it's it wasn't as bad as people said it could be but it's definitely a patient job and the only reason i did it was to take the hard edges off the exhaust for the exterior projections test for iva uh so it's to round out where the um yeah the bolts on the exhaust hold it together so not Uh, not for the safety of um like any passers-by passers-by burning themselves or anything no, it looks cool as well. Uh, <laughs> so it looks good, and it gets it through IVA. <laughs> yeah, happy days. Uh, it put front lights on. That's really cool. It completely changed the face of the car now. Yeah, it's got like a happy face. Yeah. And uh, that's really cool. And yeah, that gets me to about August, where I then struggled with engine issues from that point forward, <laughs> basically. And uh, took a few months off, which has been, it's been the best thing. Um, it's amazing how many issues you can solve by sleeping on them. Yeah, and and just not thinking about it. And then it turns out your subconscious mind is actually giving it the once over. This does it for you. Yeah, I had drivability issues. Like the car wasn't, this is just driving around the neighbourhood, the car wasn't driving properly off throttle. And yeah, I, I just went in one cold evening and plugged the laptop in and was like, I wonder if the throttle position sensor is working properly. Uh, it wasn't. It was going negative whenever you leaned on it and then it went positive. No matter where in the throttle trace you were, if you held it still, then lent on it, it would go negative and then positive. And it's like, that's apparently a really common issue of GSXR throttle bodies. So I removed it with some 3D printing magic, hooked up a uh, just a generic uh, frictionless potentiometer. Mm. and wired that in and that works great that works absolutely fantastic it gives me lovely linear throttle position which means the spark angle is correct the fuel is correct yeah it funnily enough the car drives okay now i can hear it in your voice that's that sounds very satisfying it it was yeah to take a car that was yeah 
and undrivable and make it drivable again. It's lovely. Um, the only issue I have at the moment is I have a little bit of oil on spark plug one and spark plug four, and I've been chasing it for a couple of months. I redid the valve stem seals, thinking it might be that. It wasn't that. Um, I found one thread on the internet where a guy with an MGB had the exact same issue I had. Not the same engine, just an engine. Uh, and he had just rebuilt the engine. And the guys on the forum said, go out, run the engine in hard before you worry about it. Yeah. If it's not pluming oil smoke, it's probably just the fact that the engine's not running yet. Yeah. And I am going to lean on that. And it, you know, after a couple of miles of hooning the engine... It was fine. It stopped putting oil on the plugs. And it makes sense as long as you run an engine in properly that you know, once the rings bed in, that's the job they're gonna do. So um we'll see. The compression's really good, the engine runs really well, it needs mapping. Um, but we'll take it to an airfield in the spring and we'll set the fuel and run it in hard and send I reckon it. it'll be fine. Go to an airfield in the spring and send it, you mean? Essentially you'll be the one sending it if you're up for it. Well, um, you're not gonna let me drive your car. Well, I need to sit on the laptop, so someone else has to drive it. Roger! <laughs> Roger. Roger sending fine. it. Okay, so Mandu car, Mandu engineering? Yeah, is that a question? <laughs> yes! We're both uh, professional engineers. How have you found engineering during a global pandemic? Not the easiest thing in the world, if I'm honest. No. Um, like it's very difficult to have a frank exchange of views over video chat and it's very difficult to convince a customer that there is nothing to worry about and we are on top of it when you can't sit and talk to them face to face apart from that it's okay Fine. <laughs> yeah Fine. <laughs> um yeah, I run a hardware team, so I run four guys, and trying to run a hardware team remotely, given that you generally work with hardware and equipment in front of you, pretty tough, pretty tough. Um, but the engineering industry as a whole seems to have held on really well. Um, well, actually, that said, Dyson came out and was a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that most of his engineers are still working from home, and they've had to force people back into the office, and there's been a lot of issues with that. Um, I don't understand that mentality um, because I've, I mean, so on my last project, I was running a team of, of like eight guys and you know, sometimes those guys were, were working from home. Sometimes they're in the office because um, we were testing, but I mean, the output didn't drop. So what's the issue? It's, yeah, I think that's probably your only measure. And even if output does drop, I think there needs to be a little bit of, you know, a bit of compassion, understanding that we are in a pandemic and not everyone's situations are the same. You know, not everyone's an, a young single engineer with nothing else on their hands. If you've got kids, um, or yeah, a life, <laughs> you're trying yeah. to, or, you know, people that you've got to look after, uh, people you've got to bubble and shelter. It's, uh, it's not easy. Um, that was a little bit of a frustration of mine, sort of reading the press about that. But then, you know, if you look at it from Dyson's perspective, if that company runs on the skinny line, you know, it's got a lot of shareholders and uh, a lot of the money at the end of the day goes out of the door to other people, then, yeah, I could I could understand the pressure. 
Mm. Yeah, but I mean, if we're doing, you know, we're, we're we're at late stage capitalism, but we're still doing capitalism. If if he's, um, you know, if they're if they're running their company on the skinny line, then then they need to reassess their business model, don't they? They need to be more conservative. Yeah, I think all all companies, let alone <laughs> not just engineering companies, from this point forwards, are going to have to change the nature of yeah. how they deal with their money um, because I think the world's probably a little less of a consistent place but we we can be consistently safe you know in a non-consistent place but yeah from an engineering perspective i think i agree with you tough to run business meetings let alone you know project meetings remotely um, tough to run a team remotely um but you know what it's funny how quickly people get used to it <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i've 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 recently transitioned to to my project at the moment which is I'm 100% working from home and that has been very very difficult because are you working with new people? I'm working with a completely new team. It's the same business, but so I work as a consultant for anyone who doesn't know. So um it's the same same business but a different team, different, completely different project. Um and that has been difficult, yeah, cuz cuz you just you don't really know anyone and you get given bits of work but you don't get given the the information around, you know, all that soft information around the bit of work that you're doing that actually gives you direction. Yeah, engineering's engineering's a surprisingly. Uh, this is what I'm l- learning these days. Engineering's a surprisingly soft skills subject. As much as you know, you have to technically be very good. You have to trust people, and you learn who to trust. And you, there's a lot of reading between the lines when someone says, "Yeah, project's going okay." You know, I mean, like you're like, well, if Barry says it's going okay, then it's definitely not going okay you know like it's yeah you have to you kind of learn people and okay we're in probably a bit more managerial positions you know early on you're just mostly doing technical work but you to get a project done it requires a lot of soft skills and, yeah for sure uh, soft skills remotely tough to do yeah yeah and and especially where so i do a lot of a lot of customer facing interaction as well and where you've we've got international customers, and you know, there I, I won't I won't um, go into the details, but there, there are issues, and and not having met these people face to face. I mean, I think if we could have a face to face meeting, we could sort out a lot of the issues very quickly. Yeah, but we just sure. you know we can't go to Germany. We just can't do it. So yeah. so we we have to have these these very um very sort of adversarial conversations and yeah it's, it's not the best way of doing things um but the, you know, and of course can't go to germany is a euthanism so you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not we're not going there that's not just happening. no one can go to germany at the moment you know what i mean um so yeah cool man do car then i think man man definitely do car um i do need to do some car by the way this Chevrolet Opala looks absolutely amazing. Yeah, I think I'll pop a link in for that. It's uh, how so... I, how, I, I eBayed a car while I was waiting for Alex to turn up because he is um, notoriously late to most things. And um, yeah, I can't afford it, Alex. I've got, I got bills to pay, mate. It's only £7,995, Josh. It's not even £8,000. <laughs> it's not even £8,000. It's less than £8,000. That's what you could sell it for. Oh, it's so um, cool. I'm not sure I'm big on... I'm not big on the face, if I'm honest. It look, kind of looks a bit grumpy. 
Ah, it's like a Mark III Cortina. My dream car. Anyway, thank you very much for doing car today, Alex. It, it's um, been a pleasure. There might not ever be another Mandu car. We'll just find out. Uh, you can find this podcast at ogilvyracing.com. That's where it'll always live.